If you were one of up to 30 people uh, living in Corinth or wherever, you weren't somebody who snuck into the back of the sanctuary, sat on the back pew and left during the postlude. You were at a dinner. Dinner churches are starting all over North America. The Dinner Church podcast is creating a space for conversation with Dinner Church pastors and leaders who are a part of what God is doing through Dinner Church today. I'm JD. I became a Dinner Church pastor two years ago, and I'm retracing my steps and having conversations I wish I could have had when I was starting out. Join us, lean in, learn more about what it means to launch and lead Dinner Church. One of the burning questions I had as a Dinner Church pastor early on was, What did this look like for the early church and how can that inform how we are experimenting with Dinner Church today? Well, my guest today on the Dinner Church podcast is the perfect person to help us understand what the early church's expression of agape feasts look like, how that can inform and even give a little prophetic witness to what Dinner Church can look like today. Dr. Mike Graves is the author of Table Talk, a book about rediscovering what communion and community look like in the early church and how that can inform our churches today. And this is a rich conversation that spans us talking about uh, how they didn't do sermons back then and how they looked to their Greco-Roman world and adopted some things like uh, dinner clubs and associations. And there is a lot to learn from here if you're a history nerd like me and if you're motivated by the types of gatherings you see in the New Testament, New Testament to shape uh, what sort of dinner church expression you're looking for today. So listen up. There's a lot of good stuff in here. I hope you enjoy. Well, hey, Mike, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Oh, I'm thrilled to have you. I'm so excited to have you on this podcast. Let's just begin. For uh, folks who aren't familiar with you, tell us a little bit about yourself. Where are you from? Uh, what keeps you busy these days? Well, I'm a, a native Texan, but I've been in Kansas City, Missouri, which I think of being close to the North Pole compared to Texas uh, <laughs> for about 30 something years. I'm retired seminary professor, retired from uh, St. Paul School of Theology, where I have emeritus status, which I'm pretty sure is Latin for washed up or some such thing. <laughs> and I'm now the scholar in residence at Country Club Christian Church in Kansas City, Missouri. Wow. Thank you. Thank you for being with us. And just right off the bat, thank you for taking the time to write Table Talk um, and that exploration of ancient agape feasts. I'm so excited to get into this. I told you this before we set record, but I distinctly remember when I started the book reading the little two page or maybe even one page of uh, food for thought. And you just rattled off like, what about this? What about this? And it ends with there is a dinner church movement afoot, something that the spirit is doing to revive this ancient practice of gathering around tables. And that's one of the things we love to remark is like people look at dinner church and say, wow, what an innovation. And all of us who've been a part of it, who've read your work and others like it are like, oh, no, no, (laughs) oh no, no, no. So let's just talk about your journey a little bit. How did you come to a fascination with uh, communion 
uh, practice of the Eucharist, agape feasts, and how did it fuel um, your exploration of this? Yeah, I, I stumbled into dinner church about halfway through writing the book. And mm. so the book set set out originally to be an exploration of communion and how did the earliest Christians eat this meal and what does that mean for worship, whether that's tall steeple, small church, whatever. But basically your, your Sunday morning, normal church, whenever they have communion, is it every week, once a quarter, whatever it is, how do you do it? I think I think I must have just been born Eucharistically. Mm-hmm. Um, it's sort of what, one of those hindsight moments that looking back, I had a brief stint in my childhood in the Roman Catholic Church. I didn't find it very meaningful. I'm pretty sure I convinced the family for us to quit going because mm-hmm. none of us got anything out of it. But 20 years later, I could see how over time there were longings f- for some tradition that was there. So when I came to faith as a freshman in college, uh, it it didn't really have any Eucharistic leanings, Mm. but I started to read some stuff by Robert Weber and Charles Rice and some others that made me think. And then I was at a Weber workshop and had this aha moment. I'd, I'd had church history, you know, in my MDiv and I, I knew the basics of the Reformation, but it never hit me that at, at this moment when we were correcting certain abuses, and one of those was the abuses at the table, mm. that we would throw out the baby with the bathwater. Instead of fixing it, we would, in some traditions, not all, we would say, we won't do it. We won't have it, or we won't do it very often. Mm. Um, and that just hit me. And so I guess looking back, I just see that how Eucharistic I was. And, and so all of the stuff that I had in my library that was about the subject and then Dennis Smith's book, which is very influential in uh, Table Talk, really hit home for me. And I spent some time with him. And that's when I decided, okay, nobody, not even a pastor working on MDiv is going to read this book. It's just, it's just very hard read. And it's huge. And I thought somebody needs to, in essence, translate it, um, put it into common parlance, tell stories, et cetera. And so that's how I got the idea. And so I was halfway through the book, went down to our Oklahoma City campus. We have two campuses. And after preaching on the topic in the chapel service, one of the staff members said to me, you need to check out dinner church. Mm-hmm. And I had never heard those two words put together. I like dinner, always have. <laughs> I like church, but I'd never heard the words put together. It'd be like if someone said, you should check out golf church. <laughs> I love golf. I love church. But dinner church was a totally foreign concept. And it just so happened I was going to be in New York a couple of weeks, month later. So I went to St. Lydia's in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. And that's when I decided, okay, this book's got to morph toward not just what are ancient and contemporary communion practices, but how is this whole new movement kind of, like you said, recapturing what was there from the get-go. Now, you use the word Eucharistically a couple of times. For our listeners who might be unfamiliar with what you mean by that, can you clarify that a little bit? And then I'm excited to dive in about what sure. you found out uh, about sure. early church. Yeah. Um, you know, all, traditions have different words for this meal, right? Some are as generic as the Jesus meal, but more often denominations will say communion, They'll say Eucharist. They'll say Lord's Supper. 
Um, all of those actually come from the New Testament. People are surprised when I say Eucharist does, but it's because it's hidden in the Greek. So Lord's Supper is a Pauline expression. Breaking bread is another one that's a Lucan expression. Communion is a kind of Latin translation of, of a Greek word that Paul uses that probably is better translated sharing. But Eucharist is the Greek word for thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. So when Jesus takes bread, blesses it in some tr translations, other versions, he gives thanks. And so that's where the Eucharist word comes from. And, and it's kind of funny because in my experience writing the book and talking to folks, some people associate one of those terms with the way their church does it. And that the others somehow are <laughs> wrong or whatever, which is just kind of unfortunate. So it really goes by a host of names, which is kind of interesting, too, because then it says, well, how do you capture the meaning of a meal that has so many names in the New Testament? It just shows you that it doesn't have one static meaning. It means a lot of things. Yeah. One of the things you noted in your book is that the early Christians, if they were somehow transported through a time machine and walk through one of our contemporary services might be very be bewildered. And I remember kind of laughing out loud when I read that as a church planner, because it's kind of some of the experience of people who didn't grow up in church or who haven't been in church for a long time in my own neighborhood. And I just uh, kind of laughed and chuckled a little bit about how both the early Christian, a Jesus follower, a follower of the way, and my own neighbor would have the same sort of profound confusion about our gatherings today. So my question uh -huh. to you is, uh, what, uh, what, what have we lost in some sense in the shift? Uh, I think you note that this shift towards the meeting space away from the dinner table, what did we lose when, it took, when we took that shift in uh, early church history? Yeah, I mean, a lot of people historically before, you know, this contemporary movement would have said, no, 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 we didn't lose anything. We we gained. We became a legitimate kind of movement with Constantine and we became legitimate when we had our own spaces. We became legitimate when this fledgling group of fishermen and tax collectors and women on the margins somehow attracted the wealthy and, you know, second century, third century, fourth century. And so this was progress and we would go out and make disciples of all the world. I mean, that was the challenge. And, and so we saw that as progress, but like I, I mentioned that story of the Dura Europa uh, archeological dig in which they, they basically found a house church and mm. it's a, kind of a, it's kind of a two, two pronged story, right? I mean, it's progress in the sense that the place couldn't hold everybody. So they took down the wall. So there'd be a bigger meeting space. So you'd say progress, but what they figured out was the wall they took down meant they no longer had a kitchen. Mm. And so these early meal gatherings, which is really what the earliest followers of Jesus did moved slowly but surely to a more of a meeting hall. Uh, Constantine gave the basilica for the church to use as he converted. And so you were getting legitimate, but at the same time, the architecture influenced it. And uh, the circular apse at the front, a raised platform, a hall that was shaped to, in essence, elevate the emperor mm. um, became sort of the way that Christians then started to shape their worship and spaces shape us. And unfortunately, 
you know, nowadays, the, most churches, established churches that have their own building, yeah, they have a kitchen. But if you look at the architectural drawing, it's nowhere near the meeting space. We've separated those two things. Mm. There's a phrase I've loved in my journey towards dinner church when I've been thinking about shaping the dinner church environment. That is the environment shapes the conversation. And that's what you just referenced. So what sort of environment did these early churches set and what part of their culture did they take some nods from? Did they borrow from? Describe to us what um, these agape feasts were like pre-Constantine. Yeah, so the earliest followers of Jesus, and and I would mean even during the time of Jesus, not just in the 50s and 60s and 70s after uh, his resurrection, they they didn't really invent anything, right? I mean, Jesus didn't look around and say, look, guys, we're, we're going to be followers. You're going to be followers of me, and I'm going to show you another way of being on this planet. I mean, he was Jew, and he was living in a very Hellenized world. And being a product of their culture, it was a kind of blend of Greco-Roman culture and their Judaism. Mm -hmm. So everybody in the empire uh, were members of, and and it's really tricky what word to use for this. Uh, They were members of clubs. You could call them dinner clubs. You could call Mm -hmm. them associations. One scholar actually calls them that. Some people use the Latin collegia or collegium. And then there's the Greek word ekklesia, which we now call church. But because that word's loaded, it's probably easier to say clubs. So everybody's a member of a dinner club, and they mostly met in homes. And you went to these things by invitation pretty much. uh, And I'm just describing the ones in the whole empire. You, You see how there were invitations. They were small groups. They had a meal. They had conversation, it was on different philosophical topics. Some of them were kind of fun and silly, like if you could count all the stars in the sky, do you think it'd be an odd or an even number? Uh, <laughs> just fun things like that. They were pursuing <laughs> the truth. ancient icebreaker <laughs> questions. <laughs> yeah. yeah. They, they actually did the one on the chicken and the egg too. So it's, oh, wow. it's, yeah. yeah, it's pretty fascinating. But the, the point is um, Jesus comes along And he has his own dinner club, so to speak. Hmm. And what, you know, you see there is what you would see pretty much everywhere. Somebody would welcome you by breaking off a piece of bread. This is true in the empire. It's true in the in the Jesus uh, movement. Uh, Somebody would offer you some wine. You would recline on these kind of we'll call them couches, you know, on your kind of your left elbow. So you could eat with your right and. And they had a pretty simple meal and then they would have a conversation. And so when when the Jesus movement comes along, well, this wine starts to be more symbolic than it Mm -hmm. had been for other groups. I mean, other groups were pouring it out on the floor often or into a bowl as an offering to the wine god or goddess. Mm -hmm. Um, You hear that language in the New Testament, this cup that is poured out for you. And so. Christians started to assign symbolic meaning that the culture had done, but to assign it more what we would call Christocentric kinds yeah. of meanings. Uh, the bread, of course, the conversation, instead of being about how many stars, would start to be stories that Jesus told. And then after Jesus was gone, stories about Jesus. So the church 
as we call it now, or the dinner clubs of Jesus, were very much like the others. In fact, John Kloppenborg's book, and this is a book nobody wants to read. But <laughs> That's it's, why you're here, Mike. Brilliant. That's why you're here. Yeah. <laughs> it's, so. it's absolutely brilliant. He is incredibly thoughtful and careful scholar, hmm. but it's called Christ's Associations. And what he's done is he went through basically the minutes of all the ancient clubs. And he does all this archaeological work and all this careful work to say, this is what clubs were like throughout the empire. There was some diversity, but this is. And then at the end of each chapter, he says, so what can we draw from this for the Christ associations? Mm. And at the end of all of this, 500 pages, he in essence says they were pretty much like all the others. They had dues. They had members. They kept roles. They um, ate together. They had conversations. They everything, everything, everything. One exception. They were inclusive. Mm. The other clubs, and it wasn't it wasn't necessarily a bad thing. It's just the other clubs formed along lines. They were either occupation or socioeconomic status. It's just the nature of humans. We look for commonality, yeah. so they formed along these lines. But the earliest. Christian ones from the time of Jesus all the way, it was, they broke down some barriers. I mean, it's those famous lines like neither Jew nor Greek, neither, you know, uh, Jew or Gentile, rich and poor. I mean, all of the lines get broken down. And Kloppenborg says that that set them apart. Now it was a threat within the empire because yeah. this was going to undo the social fabric. Dinner Church Collective is a nationwide community of everyday missionaries spreading the word about this simple, effective, and historical approach to starting new churches. We sure hope you'll join us for the Dinner Church Summit November 9th through the 11th, 2023, in Orlando, Florida. This will be the inaugural gathering of the Dinner Church Collective, and it's your opportunity to be a part of developing a family of pioneers passionate about recapturing this powerful expression of God's kingdom. You will meet colleagues who become friends. You will eat really well. You'll worship heartily and you'll learn tangible practices for building a dinner church movement. Learn more at dinnerchurch.com slash summit. Yeah, um, I, I imagine these clubs and associations were, would you say, used for social ascension and social currency? And then Christians came in and just flipped that upside down is what I hear you saying and saying, no, this is actually for inclusion instead of like competitive exclusion. Yeah, it, it, it's kind of tricky. The, they were about uh, connectivity. Mm -hmm. All of them in the empire were about connectivity. They didn't have a notion of climbing a social ladder, though. Mm. Everybody pretty much knew where you are is where you are. But. It was a way to maintain life. So if you're a trader of some kind of pots and pans or yeah. you're a, a tent maker, you're a person who sells things in the marketplace, you, you need to stay connected. How are you going to sell this stuff? So you stayed connected to keep living and to have friendships and so forth. They didn't see it as advanced. Hmm. So what set the Christians apart wasn't that they were more content and not climbing the ladder. It was, they were just more willing to break the barriers of like slave and free, for instance, yeah. or male and female. 
and track records a little bit spotted there, unfortunately. But yeah, it was it was more radical in its inclusion and its and I, and whether or not they even you know took pride in that, we don't know. Yeah, uh, Paul seems to suggest that that's a pretty big deal, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So one of my questions for you in in your book, you say that the shift away um, to the meeting space from the dinner table, we lost some things. And so what you're describing, I think uh, you would come away with your work saying there's some prophetic witness to the way that things used to operate to the church today. What do you think are some of those pieces or components of those dinner, Jesus dinner clubs that give sort of prophetic witness to us today, meaning that they maybe speak some truth that we need to hear about what it means to be in the Jesus club mm-hmm. <laughs> or what it means to be right. the church that we've lost in the meeting space orientation. Some of the language I use today yeah. is like our church early on was more of a stage centric church and through uh, lots of discernment have shifted to be a table centric church. And we found tons of joy in that and tons of things that we were looking for. That seems to be part of the prophetic witness. W- say more about that, or what is what what does that mean, or what what comes from their yeah. story that can give us prophetic witness right. today? Well, the one we were talking about, obviously, inclusion. Yeah, um, the, the church has a very spotted record on inclusion, but two of the other hallmarks that I think were lost is intimacy, because mm-hmm. if you were one of say 12 people, that was a pretty common number, up to 30 people uh, living in Corinth or wherever, um, you you weren't somebody who snuck into the back of the sanctuary, sat on the back <laughs> pew and left during the postlude. You were at a dinner. You were going to get to know these people and they were going to get to know you and you were going to share life together. That's why the word communion, sharing, is not just sharing this body of Christ. It's sharing life together. I think the other thing that's missing is the conversation part Mm. because the sermon, whether it's the stage model or what, it's a monologue. Um, And that wasn't possible in the dinner church. You know, the early church, there was a conversation. And so everybody participated in that conversation. In fact, the symposiarch, which was just the fancy word for the, the lead or the host of the the meal and the conversation was charged with a lot of things. Mm. And one of them was don't let anybody eat, drink too much. The other one was don't let anybody talk too much, but encourage some people who are quiet to talk as well. Mm. And so you can go to church now, the traditional church. And and by traditional, I just mean not the style of worship, but just um, what I typically call vertical kind of church. Mm -hmm. You can go and not know anybody or be known. And you can go and not participate at all. You might be given words to say, like in a call to worship that's printed and you're supposed to read your part or in some traditions, a creed, and you're supposed to say your lines, but you don't get to say what you think. You don't get to participate. You don't have voice. Mm. So, I mean, to lose intimacy and inclusion and participation, that's pretty big. And you think about our culture. Those are the things that everybody's talking about that we've lost in this technological age of social media, et cetera. Hmm. One of the phrases that we've started to adopt, helping people understand before they come to dinner church, 
what kind of experience they're going to have. We say it's impossible to be anonymous at our gathering, just so you know, like in the same sort of words, like be ready to sit around the table and share a little bit about who you are. And that's much of what you're describing. And I've heard people who've come after we started the, to be a dinner church now who come and said, I went to any number of churches around and they were great, but uh, we were anonymous. Like no one came and talked to us. And that was like just mm-hmm. impossible. <laughs> it was impossible to come and then leave without sharing a bit of who a bit of who I am. And uh, I found mm-hmm. like that's one of my biggest motivations as a dinner church pastor is our, our world is so lonely right now. We have chronic loneliness mm-hmm. in our neighborhoods. And um, it's a bit of a sociological miss on the church's part right now that is part of mm-hmm. uh, the redemptive quality of dinner church. Yeah. You know, it's interesting as you were saying that though, I have to speak up for all the introverts because I am one. <laughs> I wonder how dinner churches are navigating. Yes. Welcoming the person who can be intimate and share, but the person who says, mm, <laughs> I don't want to share, you know, and so maybe the symposiarch, or as we would say nowadays, the pastor of the dinner church has to kind of figure out how does, how does a person feel welcome, but not forced to talk for instance, or yeah. Absolutely. I think I'm going to adopt the title symposiarch now with my people and just be like, (laughs) I'm, I'm no longer your pastor and I am your symposiarch and they would just roll their eyes and send me like nerdy emojis or something like that. But that is so true and some a real uh, skill deficit that I've experienced as a dinner church pastor. I was certainly trained on how to be a compelling communicator, how to lead the operations, right. how to cast vision, how to be the person on the stage. It is a totally different mm-hmm. set of skills and muscles uh, to, to be the symposiarch, to create... Yeah. and cultivate collaborative conversation that's inclusive for the introvert and the extrovert. And we've had to do mm-hmm. real practical things. Like we have a time after our Jesus story where we say, this is listening time. And the reason we call it listening mm-hmm. time is that we want to set the basis that listening for the introverts or anyone is a gift to the people around you because we don't in our culture get mm-hmm. listened to that much. And that's part of the the intimacy that we're going for. And we just set real practical boundaries like, hey, don't share more than two minutes, which is <laughs> real clear, like right, uh, right. so that everyone gets a chance to share in our dialogue. So, yeah, yeah. it takes a new yeah. set of skills to do this. And it's reassuring that it took some of those same skills right when the church was starting out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You said something that really caught my attention. You said participation is the rarest commodity sometimes today in church worship. Say a little bit more about that and say a little bit more about what the dinner church model and the early church model recovers in that regard. Yeah, the I, I always like Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher on this. He He has this parable that people have named. I don't know that he named it, the prompter. But mm. um, basically he said, if you go to... Um, a concert, you know, the, the notion of, 
uh, or, or a stage play is, is a better analogy. Um, and the stage play, there are people up on the stage doing their lines and they're acting and they're saying the thing. And there's an audience that's taking this in. And he says that applied to church, this is a, the most common model, right? There's a congregation. They're sitting out there and we're up on this stage. So we're doing the lines. But he said it's a totally inadequate. He said the minister is actually the prompter. So you have to imagine those little carved out pieces mm. where the audience can't see who's in there, but somebody's in there and their head's sticking up. Or maybe they're mm-hmm. off to the side behind the curtain and the actor who forgets the line says, line please, or whatever, and the the prompter whispers. And his whole point was ministers are prompters and that the people are the actors. We're the ones who the word liturgy means the acts of the people, the energy, the work of the people. So yeah. we prompt the people to do this. And there is no audience unless it's God. And and taking on uh, taking in the, our our performance of the liturgy, mm. and so if you think about it, if you go to a church on any given Sunday, it's not that much different from going to a concert. Um, mm. You go in, someone gives you a program, you find a seat, um, you have no obligation whatsoever to the people around you. You just happen to all like Beyonce or whatever. And, <laughs> and when he, she, whoever comes out, there's a performance up there and you watch it and you can participate in that by clapping, standing, whatever, but you're, your audience, you're not, you're not an actor. Uh, and that is the most common way that people come to church. They come passively to watch the show and church has always tried to say, no, 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 this bulletin isn't the program. It's what we're going to ask you to do. We're going to say, let's stand now and sing. And we're going to say, please be seated. And we're going to say, let's pray, greet your neighbor, etc." So we've always broken the rules of the concert, but the concert is in our DNA because of culture. Well, the mm. dinner church model then and now says, well, first of all, the space sends a different signal. Yeah. And and what we say is you're going to participate. You're going to enact this. And even the sermon conversation, whatever you want to call it, the Jesus talk, you know, lots of different language there, that is going to be a dialogue. I might talk hmm. for seven minutes or 27, you know, nobody does that. But however long you talk, there's going to be conversation. A lot of dinner church models, you know, they they stop after a couple of minutes and say, talk about that for a minute and I'll, I'll show you one more thing in this text. Or they, yeah. um, you know, talk for five minutes and then say, let's talk about this together or in small groups. So the participation model totally changes because of the architecture and because of how the whole thing is structured. It, it's, just, yeah. it's just totally different from the concert. One of the things I see playing out in that regard in dinner church as I've experienced it is um, we uh, for a long time in church have preached about and talked about mission and engaging with our neighbors. And we give kind of professorial lectures, if you will, about how to do that on a Sunday morning that are highly motivational. And then we sing songs that kind of amp us up to love our neighbor. And then there's this great assumption that we go out and do that. One of the beauties of dinner church is that that sort of discipleship, that sort of participation 
in God's mission happens right there around the table when the neighbor, when the inclusive nature of dinner church happens and you're seated around people who are different socioeconomically from you or different even in their relationship mm-hmm. to deep Jesus, maybe not even having one at all, right then and there, uh, you are practicing, participating in proclaiming the good news of Jesus. And that's not the preacher's job on stage. That's your job right there. And so then the pastor's role becomes, and I, I have, uh, as a pastor, experienced how, how good I was at preaching the gospel from a microphone and how much work I had to do in actually helping people and coaching them in real life conversations around tables, actually telling Jesus stories from their own life, telling how Jesus had transformed them uh, and uh, enacting forgiveness, telling stories of the things that we hold most dear, the sermon points that we love the most are great from the preacher's mouth, but they're even better when you're able to tell a story next to your neighbor around the table. And so that's mm-hmm. one of the beautiful mm-hmm. elements of participation, not just uh, that we're, it's a, it, it's a performance with different actors, but also the kingdom of God is happening right there. It's not just something we're remembering. It's something that's coming to be around the table with our neighbors. Right. Yeah, yeah. The, you know, the three parts uh, typically of church is you have worship and mission and education of some sort. And yeah. and you're right. The mission happens at the table because all are welcome, which we say all the time, but they really feel a welcome. And, I, yeah. and so many of them continue that mission in the world with feeding ministries because it's, it's so, you know, uh, consistent with what the dinner church does. If we're going to get together and eat, well, how are we going to feed the poor? And so as you well know, I outlined some that actually grow crops and um, Mm. give those away at food banks and um, different food ministries that happen because, you know, if we're going to eat, maybe we should think about the people who don't have food um, and I've been to dinner churches where I kind of imagined that all dinner churches, because of St. Lydia's, I thought, well, they're all going to be uh, millennials and yuppies and they're all into <laughs> food and they're, you know, and, and it was pretty much true there. But then in Kansas City, I went to one in which a third of the people in the room around the table were longtime church members, third were kind of new to it, but then a third were homeless. And they mm. were there because there's food yeah. um, and they heard a, a, a gospel word because they got fed, you know, I mean, yeah. they, they could see that somebody cared about them and was going to give them food. And yeah, so yeah, it's different. The abundance of the dinner that night was a communication of the gospel in and of itself. Yeah. Mm. Beautiful. <laughs> well, Mike, what else? Um, would you want dinner church pastors to know about your exploration of the early church that informs their own leadership today? What, what else do you think has been important in your own coaching of dinner church pastors? And um, what else should we know from our ancestors? Yeah, I think um, I called this sort of the Starbucks test, which I'm enjoying one even now as we speak. <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. But when I was working on the book, I remember one of the Starbucks where I hung out and wrote quite a bit. Um, They asked, what are you doing? What are you working on? I said, well, I'm working on this book. And they go, what's it about? We only have so long 
you know, there at the counter. And I said, well, it's about how the earliest people had communion or the Jesus meal, whatever you call it. And, and they said, really? Well, what? And I just would name these four things that it was a, a real meal that was intimate, that it was mostly inclusive, that it was joyful and that there was this conversation. And they would all to a person say, whoa, wait, did you say joyful? <laughs> that one threw yeah. them because, mm. and we haven't talked about this and I'm glad you bring it up. Yeah. Um, the default setting in Christian churches to this day is that when it comes time for communion, maybe the house lights are lowered, but your mood should most definitely be lowered. You mm. should bow your head, close your eyes and see how bad you can feel about yourself. Mm. Because you have betrayed, you have denied the Christ, you have sinned. And of course, this is a bad reading of 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul, <laughs> writing to a house church, is concerned that the wealthy are getting there sooner and eating the food before the poor arrive. So there have, they have an inclusive group, rich and poor, but it's an abuse. And that's his main concern is... Have you discerned the body, the body of Christ, the, the church? Is everybody being fed? His concern is not what sins have you committed and, and so forth. And so, as I point out, except for Holy Week, the earliest Christians always ate this meal as joyful, even during Lent, because the six Sundays of Lent don't count toward mm. the 40 days. So Eucharist, communion, dinner church— is a joyful expression of the abundance of God who is among us, who turned 120 gallons of water into wine, who fed 5,000 with bread and fish in the wilderness. It's this abundant meal of joy and thanksgiving and sharing. Mm -hmm. And that, that really throws people because, again, it's kind of our default setting. It's a bad interpretation. And we've, you know, just kind of bought into it. So I... I, I mentioned in there, I do this. Um, I did it a lot when I was a professor because I was a guest preacher a lot, but I've gone around introducing joyful communion and this mm. is in any church. And the basic difference is that we have joyful music playing and we say, you know, like in this service, if you're going to come forward to receive communion, talk to your neighbor as you're coming and as you're going, share what's going on in your life. And, mm. and it takes a little bit of getting used to for people. Now in the dinner church setting, it's a whole lot easier, but yeah, um, yeah that that's to me, probably one of the biggest things, whether or not a person does dinner church or not, um, the evidence for it being joyful is just overwhelming in the new Testament. Uh, I remember the moment about a month and a half in as a pastor experimenting with dinner church with my congregation. And I just looked around and I had a smile on my face and I was like, this is fun. <laughs> I'm enjoying this. Uh -huh. And uh, for me, there was some personal stuff in there having led a congregation through the last few years that we've had, but also just been a decade in ministry and not experienced just the joy of not having the pressure to perform and watching the beautiful thing that is a dinner church unfold in front of me with this organic uh, mixing of neighbors and Christians and laughter and kids running around. And it's very easy in those contexts when you're sharing that over a meal to translate that into a moment of Eucharist, of Thanksgiving, of joy. 
And so, um, I had, I had, uh, a guy from the neighborhood hadn't been in the church in like 20 years, started coming to dinner church. And after about a month, he just pulled me aside and he says, I have been so happy and I haven't felt this happy in so long. And I think this dinner has mm. a big part to do with it. And that's just, that's gold. Like as a pastor oh, who's yeah. trying to love our neighbors in the way of Jesus, like that's the power of the Eucharist. That's the joy that can mm-hmm. come into people's lives. And um, he was still sorting out faith. He's still, you know, like wrestling with his own faith. But he could he could tangibly taste and experience the joy that is mm-hmm. setting a Jesus table. So thanks for thanks for bringing yeah, that in. Absolutely, it's so good. Yeah. Oh yeah, sure. All right, Mike. This has been fantastic. I encourage you if you're listening to this and have not read Table Talk, please go. And read it. It's such a rich resource. And Mike, thank you for putting it together. Thank you for being a part of this conversation. I got to conclude with our rapid fire round. These are questions that we've asked all of our guests. And so I might modify a few for you, but I'm just looking for one sentence answers for our dinner church pastors and leaders or curious folks about dinner church listening to this. So I'm going to ask you a few questions. We'll hear your responses. What's the best part of dinner church for you lately? And I'll broaden this question to say that you've observed and experienced in the dinner church uh, expressions that you're coaching or connected with. Yeah, it has to be the inclusion. has to be that a diverse group of people, many of whom would never go to church, feel welcome and received. Mm. What's your favorite dinner church meal that you've experienced? Italian for sure. <laughs> um, I like it. Yeah, some pasta, some salad, some bread and wine. It's just a natural. I wouldn't mind some gelato with it. <laughs> there you go. There you go. So you've obviously written a book on this that we recommend to people. We have resources with Fresh Expressions that are a great resource uh, for people. But what other recommendation book? article, resource, someone interested in dinner church should check out? Well, Verlin Fosner's got several volumes out of the dinner church mm-hmm. um, that I think just are really, really good. They're very practical. He's down to earth. So anything that he's done, um, if you're ambitious, you can tackle Dennis Smith or uh, John Kloppenborg, but probably sticking with Verlin would be good. Cool. Thanks for that. Uh, what one sentence piece of advice for dinner church pastors would you give? Probably to remember, if you can, have somebody else that's in charge of logistics so that you can be the minister of friendship. Mm. If you're having to worry about all the logistics, you're going to miss the opportunities to just be friends with the people who come every week, but also the the newcomers. Ministry of friendship. That's a big, big thing. Mm. That's some good advice. Mike, thank you so much for giving us a bit of your time. And thank you for the work that you've poured into the dinner church movement more broadly and putting words to page like you have. Thank you for the contribution. Um, thanks for being yeah. with us. Thanks for listening today. We'd love to connect with you and hear more about your dinner church story. You can connect with us over at dinnerchurch.com. It's also where you can find a lot of great resources about how to start or sustain your dinner church journey. 
Dinner Church Podcast is brought to you by the Dinner Church Collective and Fresh Expressions. The Dinner Church Collective is a nationwide community of everyday missionaries spreading the word about this simple, effective, and historical approach to starting new churches. We sure hope you'll join us for the Dinner Church Summit November 9th through the 11th, 2023 in Orlando, Florida. This will be the inaugural gathering of the Dinner Church Collective, and it's your opportunity to be a part of developing a family of pioneers who are passionate about recapturing this powerful expression of God's kingdom. You will meet new colleagues who become friends, all while eating well, worshiping heartily, and learning tangible practices for building a dinner church movement. Learn more at dinnerchurch.com summit. This season of the Dinner Church podcast is hosted by Heather Evans and J.D. Larson. It's edited by Joel Limbowen and produced by Kathleen Blackie and Chris Morton. Dr. Verlin Fosner is the director of Dinner Church Collective, and Dr. Chris Backert is the North American director of Fresh Expressions. If you have learned something or been encouraged by this podcast, please help us spread the word. You can give us a review on Apple Music or Spotify and even share this episode on social media. May God bless you as you serve Jesus' kingdom.